again, uh, we continue uh, in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to finish up chapter 2 today. Um, the passage is also on page um, 7 of your bulletin. So you can find it there. We'll begin in verse 9. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Let us give it our full attention. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. It is a gift. If not for your word, we'd have no way to know of this. But because of this gift to us, we not only learn about a man of courage, of prayer, a great leader, Nehemiah, but we learn even more about you, God. I pray that would be the case this morning. That we'd not simply learn about Nehemiah, but we'd learn more about you. That is our desire. Grant us our desire. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I want to share a quote with you from a, a leader who rallied his countrymen. Listen to this quote. He said, as long as there are peoples on the earth, there will be nations against nations. And they will be forced to protect their vital rights in the same way as an individual is forced to protect his rights. Said by a great leader. Many people followed this leader because he was charismatic. People saw something in him and, and said, that's the man I want to follow. Do you know who that was? Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler said those words. 
Very charismatic leader. He rallied his countrymen around a cause. Now, of course, we know it was a brutal, evil cause, but he was a powerful leader. You see, leaders come in lots of shapes and sizes and with very different purposes. But they will rally people to follow them. In this passage, we see a leader, Nehemiah. And so this morning, we're going to look at what do we learn about leaders. Look at page 7. You see the outline. Nehemiah was obviously a very, very different kind of leader. Could not be further from Adolf Hitler. He was a great leader. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of action. He was a man of faith. We talked about that last week. But look there. It says three things we learn. Leaders make plans. Leaders cast vision. And leaders face opposition. Make plans, cast vision, and are opposed. So first, making plans. Look at verse 11 through 13 again. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Well, pause. Well, now that's interesting. Three days, huh? Did he, why didn't he just go ahead? Like what? I mean, I thought he was in a hurry. I thought this was important to him. Three days. Well, maybe he should come to Sunday school next week and find out how important rest is. He's probably resting. He just had like an 800 to 1,000 mile journey to get to, from Susa to Jerusalem. And he has timing. Timing is important. We'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, we go on. He gets there three days, and then I rose in the night, not during the day, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put onto my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one in which I rode. Okay, so he gets there, he's inspecting, he says he went out by night by the valley gate, to the dragon gate, to the dung gate, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. And so uh, Jerusalem was surrounded by all these gates, and everyone had a name, just so you know. Um, and that's why he's, this is, this would. A Jew would read this and be like, oh, I, I can picture where he is. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. And so here he is. Remember, in Susa, he had made some plans, but it was all in theory. He had never been to Jerusalem. I mean, if you're going to do this big project, you probably ought to look at what you're up against. So he gets there, and he tells nobody why he's there. Catches his breath three days, and then at night he goes secretly and inspects the walls. Because he needs to see, you know, exactly what, what are we doing here? Um, based on the geography, he probably went around half of the way of the city and went back. He saw enough, right? He, I get the idea, well, we, this is really bad shape. How do you know how bad it is? Is there any clue in the text? Do you see any clue in the text of how bad the shape of the walls was? It said there was not even space for my animal to go through. Well, that's pretty broken down. You can't even get your animal through the rubble. So here he is. You know, why did he not tell anyone why he was there? Why didn't he just, you know, kind of grease the skid, say, hey, I need to do some inspection, but, you know, we're going to do something great here. <clears throat> Have you heard the expression, timing is everything? My wife tells me that sometimes. Timing is everything. Right? So if he had come in and announced to all these people that are already discouraged, hey, this is what I'm planning to do, they would have rained on his parade, right? They would have already tried, and then the neighbors, they're just waiting for an opportunity to shut him down, right? And so he, he secretly... He methodically goes around the city and comes up, figures out what he's up against. He makes his plan. So leaders make plans. We see that clearly in the text. So let me just read, going on the passage. I went by night. This is verse 13. Valley gate, dragon gate, dung gate. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down. Its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. This is interesting. Um, this is, in the New Testament, this comes up as... Uh, 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 
Simon, I'm sorry, Silmon, Sil, I can't pronounce it. Salome, there we go, Salome. Um, it's actually, uh, Jesus has a miracle there in John 9. The only reason I tell you that is that this is, this is real geography, right? And so the Jews, and in order to Jesus be there and walk through these streets to do miracles, we kind of need to have the walls rebuilt. And we talked about that before, just how it fits into redemptive history. We all have a part in that. But anyway, so he's going, a uh, king's pool. There's no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Um, then I went by night by the valley, inspected the wall, turned back, entered the valley gate, and so returned. Okay, so he's done his inspection. Um, you've probably seen in movies where they buy the old shack, right? They buy the place. It needs a little work. Right? They go in, they open the door, and it falls off the hinges. Right? They walk through, there's co cobwebs everywhere. There's like a hundred movies that have this scene in it, right? And they're like, oh, the optimistic guy says, oh, it just needs a little bit of work as he falls through the floor, right? And, right? It's just this complete dump. But then by the end, they've made it all nice, right? You've seen that. This is kind of the picture. This is a mess. Is absolutely, if you were Nehemiah, I imagine that some of us might say, it's hopeless. I should have stayed in Susa. What am I doing here? I got a bunch of discouraged people, and this is a huge mess. Have you ever faced a problem? Maybe an assignment in school. Like, there's no way I'm ever going to get this done. Right? And so Nehemiah could have responded that way. This could have been the end. Could have said, I'm headed back to Susa. I saw enough. But he didn't. We saw this last week. He was a man of faith. Remember we talked, this was two weeks ago, we often use this strategy of self-reliance, despair, and then apathy. Remember? Some people just jump straight to despair. But yeah, if he was trusting in himself, remember before, his, his prayers were impossible. This task was now looking him in the face. It was impossible. But he put his trust in something more. Look at verse 12. This is the key. This is why he did not run away with his tail between his legs. Look at verse 12. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Why was Nehemiah there? Was it because he just thought this was a great idea? He wanted to make a name for himself? No, because God had put into his heart to do this. Right? God had moved all kinds of things. Messengers came to him. That was God's doing. He got from his brother the message. Then God moved in his heart to do it. God moved in the king to give him all the stuff. Right? And then God's going to move again in just a minute. This is really important. That line. Think about it. What my God had put in my heart to do. What has God put in your heart to do for him? Has God put anything in your heart? Do you have any dreams or desires to do to advance the kingdom of God? Nehemiah did. Ephesians 2.10, you often hear me quote this. We quote it last night. We are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in. God has prepared specific works just for you for all of us to do. And so if that's the case, then he would love to lay something on our hearts. Why would you not? Why could we all not say that? I, yes, absolutely. God is late. I'm passionate about doing something for the Lord. There's many reasons. Some of us don't want to hear it. <laughs> We're distracted. There's many things that can keep us from hearing. So I encourage you to think about that. If you have nothing on your mind or your heart that inspires you for God, ask him. Say, God, you said in your word, you prepared good works for me to do. Would you lay something on my heart? Give me some joy, some zeal to serve you. It's a very legitimate prayer. It is what drove Nehemiah. It is why he did not run away. 
There's a great quote from Hudson Taylor I want to share with you. Hudson Taylor was a missionary, a great missionary of faith. He said, dream a dream so big that unless God intervenes, it will fail. Dream a dream so big that unless God intervenes, it will fail. I love that. Now there's a key to this. (laughs) Your big dream needs to be God's big dream. There are many people who have big dreams and they fail. Why? Because they weren't actually God's. I could come with all kinds of great ideas and they're going to succeed unless God's actually in it. That is a key point. Dream big dreams to make sure, and we'll come back to this later. Okay, so at this point, he's made some plans. What comes next? Second point, leaders cast vision. Look at verse 17 and 18. So he's, he's done his, his look around the city. I'm betting he prayed some after that, like, oh God, you're going to have to help. You're going to really have to show up. This is a real, this is even bigger than I imagined. Look at verse 17 and 18. This is what comes next. Then I said to them, he's ready to speak. Make his announcement to the Jews. You see the trouble that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them how the hand of my God had been upon me for good and also about the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. Okay, so look at the beginning, 17. Why does he start there? You know, like if you're going to try to like inspire people, why do you rain on your own parade? Why does he say you see the trouble we're in and you see the big burn wall? And everyone's like, I know, and everyone leaves. He, had, he acknowledges the elephant in the room because you know what? They actually didn't know it. You know, actually, oftentimes many people that are discouraged don't realize that. It's just the water they live in. The, the Jews knew no other way. If, how could we not be? Look at the situation we're in. One of the things leaders do is they just draw to people's attention. Do you realize the state of your mind? We suffer derision. Kids, you know what that word means? Derision? That could be translated to be disgraced, condition of shame, scorn. It's not good. You probably got that part, right? It's not good. They are not, they're not very excited. But then look what he says next. Does he say, hey, you've got a problem. You better tend to this. No, he says, we We've got a problem. See, this is one of the great things about leaders is they come and they join the people. They're part of it. And he, that's what he's done. He's come from Susa and he says, I'm a Jew with you. We have a problem together. We have something to do, right? Isn't that what he says? If you contrast, here kids, here's something you can do. If you have something to write with, find in, the, in verses, oh, I don't know, maybe 11 through 16, all the times it says I. I found 12. See how many you find. All the eyes, right? So that was not a group project. <laughs> he, somebody, it's all in the first person. I went and inspected. I looked around. I made a plan. But then now, do you see any more eyes? No, it's now it's we, it's us. Do you see in 17 and 18? Okay, well, there's a few eyes, but it's not in him talking to them. You see the trouble that we're in, how lines and ruins. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He wasn't suffering derision way in Susa, but he is part of the Jews. I love that. You know, another great leader from World War II uh, was Winston Churchill. Uh, If you know the story of um, Dunkirk, do you know the story of Dunkirk? Amazing story. Uh, So all the uh, British and French troops get driven to the coast. And so they're pinned against the water, and the Germans just have them 
um, surrounded. So they got them over the air, and so they're just going to kill them all, and it's going to be a massacre. There's not nearly the boats they need to get all the men out, and so Britain sends every craft they've got, every um, yacht, every fishing boat, everything comes over and gets them. It's a, a neat story, but think about if you're those troops. You arrive back on the beaches of Britain. How are you feeling? Are you really excited and gung-ho? We just got driven by the Germans to the coast and rescued by some guy in a yacht. Boy, we're ready to defeat Hitler, aren't we? And so this, listen to the words. I've, I've actually shared this with you before because it's such a good story. I'm going to share with you again. This is what Winston Churchill says from a dungeon under London. Right here he is speaking to his people. And he says, we shall, this is right after that happened. Think you're in that mindset. We shall go on to the end, he says. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. One of the cool things that, that God used Winston Churchill was to breathe hope. You see, what did the people in Jerusalem lack? It was hope. If you've ever felt hopeless, it's not a fun place to be, is it? They needed hope. Winston Churchill gave the people of Britain hope, a fighting spirit to fight to the death. How does Nehemiah rally the people? Is it self-reliance? I'm a great man. I'm a great leader. Come, is he charismatic? Well, we don't see any real charisma here. No pep rally. No multimedia presentation. What does he do to rally them? Look at the verse, verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 18. What does he tell them? He tells them one fact, and upon that one fact, it changes everything for them. Right? They go from hopeless to having hope. Look, there it is. I told them what? I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. So let's just review. He probably did. He probably told them everything that's happened so far. Remember what happened? We said last week, Nehemiah was before the king. He brought wine to him. And the king says, you look sad. Why are you so sad? Remember, he, and he, he got scared, right? And he said, how could I not be sad? My, my city, the place of my birth is, is all broken down and destroyed. Remember, the king says, well, what do you mean to do? And then he shot that little arrow prayer up to heaven. Maybe when something like, God help. I need you, God. And then he said, I want to go back. Send me back. Send me back to rebuild the wall. King said, sure. He said, I want safety. I want letters. Well, what did the king do? He didn't only send with letters. He sent with guards, right? We see this in this passage in verse 9. He sent with soldiers on horseback. He wanted supplies. He said, send letters for the guy who keeps the king's forest that I can have supplies. So he, he was sent safety and supplies. So Nehemiah is telling, it wasn't encouraging last week. I was encouraged by that. Some guy 2,500 years ago that God showed up for. He prayed and fasted and God did cool things. Was it encouraging to you? It was to me. Think about the Jews. If we can be encouraged 2,500 years later, think about them in Jerusalem to hear that God has already moved Artaxerxes, who'd already shut down the whole operation previously. Wow, that'd be really encouraging. You see, the most encouraging thing is to know that the hand of God is with you. Do you know that? 
Do you know that the hand of God is with you? Interesting question, isn't it? How could we know? One of the best ways is the cross, isn't it? What has he already done for you? He loves you. We said Galatians, his, your adoption. You, some of you memorized a verse about that. How we've been adopted. There's a great verse in Romans 8.32. It says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? How can you know that God's hand is with you? Because he's already given you Christ. That's a much bigger thing. Everything else is small potatoes, right? Just keeping you safe, taking care of your health, all these things, right? Can he do those things too? Of course. You can know with certainty that the good hand of God is with you. Now, some other ways is, are the things you're doing actually the work of God? Have you filled all your time with your own pursuits? Well, God might not bless those, right? If you're just made your own dreams and you're running after your own things, right? Remember Jonah? He said, God said this way, and he said, I'm going this way. Did God bless that journey? No. You got to turn him around, right? So doing God's work, it makes sense. We want to make sure, God, am I doing the things you want me to be doing? Obviously, your hand is with me as a Christian, but also, am I doing what you want? Which also relates to stewardship, right? And there's actually, we made, if you weren't there last night, we have a devotion for you. It's actually on the back table. Grab it on your way out. A five-day devotion about stewardship. See, part of knowing that God's hand is with you is that we're actually, know that we're actually stewarding what God gave us as a, as a good servant with the talents he's given us. Another great verse on this, John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? Are, we, are you abiding in Christ? As, you, as we read the scriptures each day, it helps feed our souls. It's, then we, we know what God wants because we actually listen to him. We read his word. And so then we're actually doing the things God wants and we're encouraged to know that we're saved, right? So it all fits together. I wish our passage ended here, but it doesn't. Third point, expect opposition. Leaders should, should expect opposition. Look, well, before we look at this passage, is bookended with opposition. Look at the first two verses, 9 and 10. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the, letter, the king's letters. Was that enough? Now the kings had sent me with officers. Is that enough? Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, when they heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And then you look down at the end of the passage, verse 19. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us, saying, what is this thing you've done? Are you rebelling against the king? All right, let's do a geography lesson. Sanballat the Hornite is north of Judah. And then we've got Tobiah is to the east. And then the Arab, Geshem, is to the south. Well, how convenient for good old Nehemiah. He's virtually surrounded. So basically, all the peoples around him hate him. and want to see him fail. And look at what they say. The, that line they say, it worked last time wonderfully. 
If you looked at Ezra chapter 4, that's what got it all shut down. They told, hey, King Artaxerxes, those Jews, they're dangerous. Look in the history. You don't want them rebuilding their city, right? And so that's what he says. He says, are you re- you're rebelling against the king? Why did Nehemiah not say, no, here's my letters from the king. No, I'm a representative from the king. Why did he not appeal to the authority of the king? That would have made a lot of sense. Artaxerxes was over this whole region. Think about that. Why did he not? Look at who he does appeal to. What authority does he appeal to? Our last verse, verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven. He appeals to the highest authority. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We're taking our orders from God. You take it up with God if you don't like it. That's what he's saying. See, that's the benefit of knowing that what you're doing, the way you're stewarding your time, everything, is actually what God wants you to be doing, is then when you're opposed, you say, take it up with God. I'm just doing my orders. I'm just doing what I was told to do. He appeals to that authority. Do you remember when Satan, um, okay, we're fast forward to the New Testament. Satan shows up with Jesus. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and Jesus, or Satan is tempting him. Let me read to you one of the temptations. This is Matthew chapter four. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, this is Jesus, all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will but fall down and worship me. That was Satan's offer to Jesus. He said, this can end right now. I'll make peace. Satan is the king of this earth, Scripture will say. He says, you can have all the kingdoms of the earth. All you have to do is bow to me and this all can be over. This will be very painless. This all can be over. Hitler made some offers like that to some countries in Europe. If you know your history, it didn't turn out well. Hey, just... Just bow to me and everything is going to be okay. Of course, Jesus says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Jesus said no to his peace treaty and he went to the cross. He suffered through for three years in his ministry and he went to this cro- the cross and defeated Satan there. Why do I tell you that? Because that's what's been going on ever since then. No peace treaties with Satan and we're going to suffer. Now he is a defeated foe. Be encouraged, he's a defeated foe. But he's still a foe. He's not dead yet. He's defeated, but not dead. And so he still fights against us. And he stirs up opposition to any good work. Right? Churches that are planted, we're always planting churches in enemy-occupied territory. Do you believe that? That every church is planted in enemy-occupied territory. That's what we're doing here. And so we should expect opposition. Internally, externally, opposition will come. We should expect it. But notice his strategy. I love that. How he doesn't, he appeals to God. Second Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, we all, let me say it again. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As Derek Thomas, a preacher said, do not be alarmed when we face opposition. We should be alarmed when there's no opposition. If no one is opposing us and everyone is praising us, something is wrong. If we're in enemy-occupied territory, if everyone around us just loves us, we're doing so much good for the community. Some people do love us, 
But the more we're faithful to the gospel, we will make enemies. Hopefully not everyone will be our enemy. Some will become Christians and they'll join us. But we should expect opposition. Okay, so we've, let's review our outline. Look at the outline. Leaders make plans. Leaders cast vision. Leaders are opposed. It's true. This is true for everyone. Churchill and Hitler, they made plans. They cast a vision and they were opposed. You could apply these principles in any context. But please don't tune me out now. This is not just a leadership lesson. These are all tried and true leadership principles. But I want you to think about an even greater leader than Nehemiah. Someone who left his cushy situation to go to a far less cushy situation. Someone who made plans. Who rallied his people. You probably figured it out. Kids, who is it? Jesus. It's Christ. Christ left heaven and came to earth. He very much made plans. He stayed up all night before he chose his disciples. He did his father's will. He went city to city. There was a lot of planning in, that, in his ministry. He think of any time that he casted vision? Two come to mind for me. One's Matthew 9. I love these verses. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And what did he say to them, to his disciples? He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he sends out labors. Is that casting vision? Absolutely. He says, when you see people, you should see a harvest. And you should have compassion for them. And you should pray that God would send out workers. What about the Great Commission? That would also definitely qualify as casting vision. Jesus did that. Was Jesus opposed? You better believe it. Right? So we see that in Jesus. So I want, if you have a writing instrument, grab it now. Because is it just, is it just leaders that need, need these things to make plans? What about elders and deacons? Those of you who are in officer training? Yes. You need to make plans. You need to cast vision. You will be opposed. But is it just leaders, just church leaders? What about dads? Fathers, should you make plans for your family? Should you cast vision? Should you expect opposition, even in the home? If you're following God, and particularly outside of it, yes. What about mothers? Should you cast vision for your children? What it means to follow Christ? Yes. So I think you should cross out leaders and replace it with Christians. Christians should make plans. Christians should cast vision. And Christians should expect to be opposed. Is that not fair? See, this is not just for leaders. Now, people say there's two types of people in the world, those who are leaders and those who are followers. So if you are a natural leader, let me speak to you for a moment. A few things. This really speaks to both. A natural leader is first a follower, right? Remember we said, don't just make your own plans. You get your plans from Christ. This is hard for leaders to remember. You are first a follower. You are following Christ. But after that, you must make plans according to God's plans. You must cast vision according to God's vision. And you're being opposed because Christ was opposed. Charismatic leaders will attract a following. But we want to make sure we're leading them in the right direction, right? So that's for the leaders. What if you're a natural follower? How does this passage speak to you? Well, one is be careful who you follow. I started this service with a quote from Adolf Hitler. 
That's not, if that's not a warning, I don't know. There's lots of charismatic leaders. And in time, they'll show themselves, but at the time, they, many seem like they're not that bad. But this isn't just true out there, is it? This is also true in the church, sadly. There are charismatic church leaders that are really trying to build their own kingdom. You must be careful. If someone is making much to do about themselves and their church and how we are going to be this great church, you should probably wince and listen closely and make sure that this might not be the place for you. Hopefully that's not me. If it is, come talk to me. But we are not here to make a great name for ourselves. This is about Christ and his kingdom. But it is sad, even in the church, there are people who are trying to make a great name. Be careful who you follow. Okay, but for the followers also, you're also a leader. Even followers are leaders. If you're a mother, even a sibling, is there anyone younger than you in the house? You should be leading them. You should be setting an example. You should say, hey, this is how we act in our house to your younger siblings. That's not how we, we should probably do what mom said. You can be a leader even among your siblings. So whether you're a leader or a follower, there's something for all of us here. As 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we, which is speaking to all believers, are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. May we not just be bumping along through life. My heart's desire is that we would all make plans individually as families and as a church according to what God is wanting to do. That we'd cast a vision. Last night, I casted vision to you for the year. Right? And you must hold it accountable to Scripture. Hey, is what he's saying in alignment with Scripture? And if it is, can I get on board with it? Hey, and how do I cast vision in my own home? What does God want us to be about? Prepare for opposition. It will come. But have confidence in this. The gates of hell will not stop the advance of Christ's church. They never have been able to, and they never will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us at every level. I pray at the smallest level for children. Lord, the older siblings would, would realize that they have a duty to to show younger siblings to be a good example and to lead them even as they follow their parents. I pray for the parents that you would help them make plans for their family where things, their wall is broken down proverbially in their home, that they would cast vision to their family, how they can rebuild it together. I pray that we do that as a church. Lord, please protect us from ever trying to make a great name for ourselves. We would only try to make much of your name. Lord, and I pray for, for churches that do that. Lord, open their eyes. Protect them from shipwrecking them and their congregations. Lord, I wish it were not so, but it is true in our country in many places. So, Lord, we want you to purify your church. That we would be all about your work, your vision for your glory. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.